postage, a lot of ground. Uh, it, it covers these two, primarily these two imprisonments, and this has led some to believe that, that they're, they're so similar that they're the same account, just with different details, or the same event, but two different accounts. I think there are enough differences between these two events uh, to overrule that thought. Instead, what's happening is as Babylon is coming against the city, the intensity of everything is ratcheting up. So much so that everybody's on edge. Everybody's feeling it. And Jeremiah receives the brunt of all of this as God's prophet. His first imprisonment, no walk in the park, but maybe a little simpler than the second imprisonment. It seemingly, we're not given time frames, but it seems to be more, uh, 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 not necessarily short-lived, but more tame. Uh, even though he begged to be released, the cistern was a whole different ball game. He was sent there to die. That was the intent of those who threw him in there. They didn't have the courage to kill him, but they wanted him to die of natural causes for their own political gain so that they could say, we didn't kill him, but he died. This portion of the book of Jeremiah, we fast forward it again. We're up to King Zedekiah once more. And this is, this is just before the fall of Jerusalem, the siege that the Babylonian army made against uh, Jerusalem and the, the whole region of Judah. And during this, we see Jeremiah's experience of suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now, we've already seen Jeremiah's message rejected repeatedly through, at this point, uh, over two decades of ministry. Uh, we've seen him ignored and dismissed. We've seen uh, the, the accounts of him uh, being imprisoned, uh, the, the stock experience where he was put in the stocks by Pashur. Uh, Jeremiah has certainly been mistreated. But this time that leads up to the siege of Jerusalem is clearly more intense. There's more going on. Uh, and, and, and in the face of this, Jeremiah is catching a lot of it. One of the things we see is Zedekiah's weak leadership and seeming inability to be decisive. Zedekiah, at one minute, he's, hey, pray to God for us. He sounds spiritual. He looks like a leader. But at the next minute, he's trying to secretly meet with Jeremiah. And then on the other side, he's telling the people, ah, you guys have all the power over me. Do whatever you want. I have no power over you. He's just all over the place, almost like a politician who sticks his finger in the wind and decides which way to vote based on whatever way the wind's blowing. We witness the vindictiveness of those fellow Judean citizens who are in positions of power. They des desire to devour whoever's in their way. They want to step over. They want to gain more and more power. It's insatiable, their lust for power. We see in the overall mindset, the country is looking to deliverance, not from the hand of God, but politically or militarily, even looking to Egypt to come and to save them. In other words, it's a lot like our own day in America. So many of our leaders make decisions based on whichever way the political winds are blowing. And now we have YouTube and we can go back and see which way they said they believed five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it doesn't seem to matter. It just, that's, we just expect that. That's what politicians do. We see the vindictiveness of cancel culture and thought police felt by so many who have not spoken in line with the current thoughts and trends. And we see many in the church and some who may claim the name of Christ but may or may not be believers, but blurring the lines between where our true hope is found, whether it be in Christ alone or in some kind of political deliverance. You and I may not be prophets sent to 
deliver a message of judgment. We may not face imprisonment as Jeremiah did, but there is still much that we can learn from his experience and how we are to stand in times like this. First, I am not trying to create unnecessary fear or suggest that the sky is falling, but I think any student of history can see that there is an increasing opportunity for persecution for Christians in our day. We don't need to be anxious about this, but we do need to be honest with ourselves about it. There may come a day when our jobs are on the line, where we are cut off from goods and services, or even more intense forms of persecution simply for our faith. Second, I think we also need to be candid about our own hearts and where our confidence lies in terms of where our hope is found. Is our hope in Christ alone as our ruling and reigning king? Or do we spend most of our time listening to and watching political discourse and then speaking out all of that? If our, if our time and our energy were a checkbook register, where would it indicate our hope is found? How we spend our time and how we spend our energy is a good indicator of that. Third, I think we need to be equipped to make a stand to know how to stand in our current day. Various methods and arguments don't age the same, and we need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves in how we engage. For example, while God's Word is authoritative to us as believers, secularists do not consider it authoritative. Many don't find it compelling. But that doesn't mean we stop believing it or stop proclaiming it, but it may mean that we start at a different place. We start with created order, possibly, or natural law, or even just scientific understanding. But beyond these things of what we can learn from this passage in Jeremiah, what I really want us to see is the hope of deliverance. I'm not speaking about Jeremiah's rescue from prison as important and beneficial as that was. I'm speaking of the fact that Jeremiah's faith rested in God, no matter the outcome. Jeremiah was ready to die, and it seems likely that he was close to death. Uh, In in both cases, at first it was just starvation. The bread was running out. He didn't have food, and the Lord delivered him from that. But in the cistern, he was put in there to die. No food and uh, very dim, dark circumstances there. And so is the passage before us that we should be like Jeremiah? Well, hopefully you know the answer to that because I go back to this over and over again. Our tendency is to look at the person and kind of elevate them. And we can admire Jeremiah's faith, and we can seek to emulate his faith, but the message is not Jeremiah's faith. The message is the object of Jeremiah's faith. He trusted in the God who ruled and reigned over all the affairs of mankind, over wars, over food shortages, over political changes, over the climate, over the economy, over all of the matters that concern the people in Judah's day and concern us in our own day. And this is where we need to end up, that we have a God who will ultimately rescue us. Earthly deliverances may come and they may not. Sometimes they come quickly and sometimes they take forever. But what about those who die in prison? or those who aren't healed from their diseases, or those who are slaughtered for their faith, like we see happening in so many places that are rarely, if ever, reported by our media. Nigeria, if you want to go down a rabbit hole of what's happening to Christians in Nigeria today, it's, uh, it's deeply disturbing. But we have a hope that amid those persecutions and amid those difficulties, we have a hope 
that lifts us beyond what we experience in this earth. It gives us a faith to endure them. And that hope that is ours who believe is solidified in our hearts as we look back to the cross. That's why we come to the cross again and again and again, because it's the proof not only of God's love for us and our redemption, but it's the proof that He will carry us safely home, that He will bring to completion what He has begun. That's what the Apostle Paul said when he was in prison in Philippians 1.6. He said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. So now looking with me in verse 1 of chapter 37, we see the time shift forward again. We're at the reign of Zedekiah. He is the final king of Judah. And we're reminded of how he became king, that Nebuchadnezzar put him there. He was in in a very real sense a puppet king. Uh, Zedekiah was put in place by Nebuchadnezzar to do the will of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why he ultimately fell, was he rebelled. He had this internal tension. He was a Judean and he wanted to you know, be loyal to his own countrymen, but we can see what kind of leader he was, even just in this account alone, of how fickle he was. He had no courage, he had no backbone, he was not decisive, he couldn't, I mean, he just, he was just whichever way the wind would blow. Jehoiakim was who he replaced. He's called Coniah here. Understand these are royalties, so they get more than one name, but also when a conquering king would come in, he would give them one of his names. And so that's why we see so many different names used. But Coniah is Jehoiachin. And uh, to many in Judah, he was still considered the rightful king. So when I talk about political pressure and intensity increasing, this is just one of the ways that was happening. Zedekiah was put in power, but he wasn't really in power. He was placed in power to be a weak king. Verse 2 also reminds us of the spiritual state, not only of the king, but of the people, that they had continued to refuse to listen to God's call to repent and to actually obey. But, strangely as that may all seem, Zedekiah shows interest in Jeremiah praying. Look in verse 3. He sends a delegation to Jeremiah and says, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. It sounds noble, doesn't it? We're not told why he sends this delegation, but it's not hard for us to put the pieces together. When we look back in chapter 21, which covers the same period of time, which we've already looked at, so hopefully it's, there's some uh, memory of this, you'll remember that uh, Zedekiah sent another entourage to Jeremiah to pray. And in that time, in, in Jeremiah 21.2, he said, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. And so he's using this religious rhetoric, throwing out kind of Hail Marys, trying whatever, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. We'll do whatever we can to get this guy off our back. Well, this is the same motivation now in, in requesting prayer. He wants deliverance from Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want to be conquered, obviously. So the request here is for uh, salvation. They want to be saved from the Babylonian army. Uh, but we'll see from Zedekiah's further actions that this was disingenuous, to say the least. He was insincere. He would not repent nor lead his people in repentance. He would continue on the same track. We're then told in verses 4 and 5 that Jer- Jeremiah's status, he's still free. He's able to move. He's not yet in prison. And that Egypt is coming up uh, to uh, help them. They had sought out Egypt's help a number of times. Egypt was kind of a fickle ally of Israel and now the, the, the kingdom of Judah, where they, um, they were in this for themselves, understandably so. If you understand geographically where 
Egypt sits, you, you would see where Babylon, coming in from the north as they would, as they did, would have to come through the region of Judah to get to Egypt. So it was to their benefit, uh, Egypt's benefit, to stop them at this point. And there were a number of pro-Egypt politicians who were lobbying to get Egypt to come and protect Judah. And this puts Zedekiah in a predicament. Does he lobby with the pro-Egypt politicians to get them to come and help? If he does so, Zedekiah may come and kill him and remove him as king. Uh, But if he doesn't, (laughs) then Babylon's going to take over and he's going to suffer the fate that Jeremiah has been predicting all of this time. Well, the Babylonian army leaves Jerusalem. They stop their siege because they have to go deal with the advancing Egyptian army. And so to their eyes, the people of Judah believe God's answering our prayers. Babylon's gone. The Chaldean army is left. We're we're saved. But the Lord has another message for Zedekiah through Jeremiah, and that is Pharaoh's about to tuck tail. He's not going to get very far. He's going to turn around and go back to his own country, and Babylon's departure is going to be short-lived. They're going to come right back and they're going to annihilate the city. He says to them, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. The Lord's point here is saying, No matter what you see with your eyes, it's kind of like when a hurricane's coming, and we look outside and it's blue skies and we think it's not so bad, right? He's like, no, no matter what you see with your eyes, even if all of the Chaldeans were wounded in their tents, they couldn't even get out of their tents. There is a storm that's coming and the Chaldeans are going to burn. They're going to raise this city to the ground. Well, in this meantime, while before they have to return, Jeremiah, we're told, is going to go back home and deal with some kind of real estate issue. It's not the same real estate issue as when his cousin came to get him to buy the land. This is something else. Maybe he had to pay his taxes or update a deed. But he tries to go out of the city, go back to, uh, to, to his home, home region of, uh, of Benjamin. And he, as he goes to leave, he has to go through the Benjamin Gate to head that way. And there is a sentry there named Elijah who stops him and accuses him of deserting. And this makes perfect sense because this is exactly what Jeremiah had told the people to do. Jeremiah had told them, again, if you remember back to 21, chapter 21, he told the people, if you want to live, if you want to save your life, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. So this is what the message Jeremiah has been proclaiming. So for Elijah to think this, and maybe other people were doing the same thing. There's a makeshift prison in Jonathan's house. You wonder why they had to put together a makeshift prison. Did they have so many prisoners who were obeying or following Jeremiah's lead that were trying to abandon? So it makes sense why the sentry would think this way and accuse Jeremiah. Of course, Jeremiah defends himself. The the, the accusation is false. He's uh, He's not deserting his country. He's going there to do business, but it doesn't matter. Elijah won't listen. He takes him to the higher ups. They won't listen. They believe the worst about Jeremiah. They beat him. And they throw him in prison. Again, it's in the house of Jonathan, the secretary. And and it implies that there's some need for this makeshift prison. Well, after many days, the king sends for Jeremiah. And this time he does so secretly. Again, we get some insight into his character as king. The the political nature, he, he doesn't want his advisors to know he's talking to 
Jeremiah. He wants to keep it secret. There's no true courage, no true leadership. He's trying to keep his discussions kind of on the down low because they might know where his loyalties lie. He's trying to read the room, so to speak, to figure out which way he's going to go. And so he brings Jeremiah there in secrecy. And he does believe Jeremiah is God's messenger, at least according to this, but he will not do what Jeremiah delivers in the message. So there's this lip service of belief. There's this saying he's a believer in a sense of the message, but there's no action. There's no fruit to back that up. He will never repent nor lead the people in repentance. He's truly a disgraceful king. Well, Jeremiah gives the answer to his request and he says, there's a message from the Lord. The Lord will deliver you. And there is no punctuation in the English Bible, but I kind of imagine that he might have paused for just a minute into the hand of the king of Babylon. Now, maybe Jeremiah doesn't have my sense of humor, but I at least wish that he would have done that uh, just for effect to give, uh, to give Zedekiah, make him sweat a little bit. But he, he, the, his fate had not changed because he had not changed. He had not repented, so the outcome wasn't going to be different. It was exactly what Jeremiah had been prophesying all along, that as long as you stay this course, this is the outcome. And so after giving him that message, Jeremiah, for, for better or worse... Uh, uses the occasion to to bring up his own case, his own uh, imprisonment. What wrong have I done to deserve this, he asks. And he emphasizes in asking this question that he, he says, in essence, to the king, look at the evidence out here. Your false prophets have been saying the Chaldeans will never come. They'll never take the city. And they were literally laying siege to the city before the Egyptians came up. And they're going to come back and they're going to finish the job. That's what I've been saying all along. Why won't you believe me? Why won't you see that I'm the true prophet? He doesn't have all that language in there, but that's, that's kind of the heart of what he's saying. And then he pleads with him, not, do not send me back to prison. Don't, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to die there in verse 20. And the king sort of shows favor by releasing him from that prison, not from prison entirely. Instead, he sends him back to the court of the guard. And this is that area in the palace court that was guarded. It wasn't quite like being in a prison cell, but it wasn't freedom either. But it was better than what he had experienced. Jeremiah had been in the court of guard before, and he will end up there again. Well, that's not enough for some people, those who had political aspirations in Judah. They want Jeremiah dead. And there's a group of men who then come in chapter 38 to seek his life. The warning that I already read from chapter 21 that Jeremiah had been giving the people to, uh, to go out and to, to surrender to the Babylonian army if you want to live, well, that's repeated here in chapter 38, verse 2. But these men did not want to believe that. And instead, they want Jeremiah's silence. They say to the king, let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking their wel- the welfare of this people, but their harm. What was Jeremiah actually doing? Jeremiah was actually seeking the welfare of this people to protect them from harm. But note what what the opposition does, they flip it around. They accuse him of the one of bringing harm. And this is the same, the same thing that we see happening in our own day. Christians who uphold life, the sanctity of life, uh, the opposition comes along and suggests that they're restricting women's health care. Christians who stand on the fact that humans are created in the image of God, male and female, and the opposition resists this by uh, accusing them of uh, oppression of expression. 
Christians understand morality informs law, that laws are indeed an expression of moral order, and the opposition suggests that Christians are trying to force their ideas on everyone else. It's all ironic, and yet it's pretty much the same that we see here in this time in Judah. The irony is here as well because as God's prophet, Jeremiah was actually, he had the message for their deliverance, a way for them to live. Yeah, they were still going to get carried off into exile. That was already part of the judgment. But they would at least get to live if they would just go out and surrender. And yet the opposition turns that around and accuses Jeremiah of intending to harm them, the very opposite of what he was trying to do. And for that, they wanted him to die. They didn't seemingly have the courage to execute him themselves. These are politicians. They know better. And so they come up with a plan to lead to Jeremiah's death so that they could then say, hands are clean, he died of natural causes. And so they decide to throw him into a cistern. And the king shows no courage here, no leadership. He says, behold, he's in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Once again, we see Zedekiah for who he truly is, afraid to act like a king, afraid to be the sovereign of the land, not only failing to act, but also strengthening the opposition's power by saying they have power over him. He is a a shameful and disgraceful king. So Jeremiah now is thrown into the cistern. It's empty of water, but the bottom is still very muddy and swampy, and he sinks down into this mud. We can only imagine what this was like. It was dark. It was damp. It was uh, no doubt scary uh, in the sense of Jeremiah must have wondered, is this how I'm going to die? Is this how it's all going to end? I imagine that he struggled to have hope. But God sends a deliverer, and he sends the most unlikely candidate, reminiscent of the New Testament parable of the Good Samaritan. His name is Ebed-Melech, and his name means literally the servant of the king, and that's what he was. He was a servant in the palace, but he was a servant who sought to do justly and to love mercy. He was a Gentile and he was a eunuch. He was Ethiopian. So this made him doubly unclean before the Jews. And yet he's the one who demonstrated selfless love, risking his own safety to rescue Jeremiah. He goes to the king who's sitting on his throne at the Benjamin Gate. He would have set up shop there to hear cases and to settle disputes, to bring justice among the people. That was the intent of this role when he would set up to do this. And ironically, this great injustice is happening to Jeremiah under his reign while he's out there doing this business. And Ebed-Melech makes his appeal to the king. And Zedekiah, interestingly enough, concedes. He says Jeremiah can be rescued, and he sends 30 men with him to bring him up out of the cistern. And because of Ebed-Melech's job, he knows the palace, and he knows where rags and old clothes are stored, and he has the foresight, the compassion to think about such a thing. And so he goes, they get the rags, they get the worn-out clothes, and he shows this incredible compassion to help Jeremiah up to safety in a way that doesn't harm him by putting the rags under his armpits. And they drew Jeremiah up out of the mud and the mire, and Jeremiah was returned to the court of the guard. Well, the rescue of Jeremiah makes us think of, I'm going to guess I'm not the only one who, who thinks of Psalm 40 when I read this. It sounds just like Psalm 40 where David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet upon a rock. He made my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And this is what Jeremiah records here. His deliverance 
so that the exiles would one day see and read and hear and fear the Lord, so that we might also read this account and put our trust in the Lord. David goes on in the next verse, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And this is to say that we are made secure when we trust in the Lord and not in people. Not in the military, not in the political system, not in the economic system, not in whatever it is we're inclined to put our trust in for our deliverance, for our salvation. When we trust in the Lord alone, we are made secure. This is particularly true when we refuse to buy into the lies of our age, when we stand against those who profess falsehood. The world around us today continues to lob lies into our culture with promises of the good life, of prosperity and hope. And we must instead resist this. These deceptions stand firm in our faith in Christ alone. That we have a hope that is beyond this world, beyond this life, beyond these circumstances, beyond whatever is happening. And His Word declares to us that we are saved from the effects of the fall, right? The wrath of God, the just wrath that we deserve. We we look to the cross and we've been saved from that. Jesus' death and resurrection declares that, and that one day we will be delivered from the wretched presence of sin in this world forever. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We see Jeremiah continue to do his job to proclaim the message of that God gave him despite the circumstances, despite the opposition. He continued to trust in the Lord in the face of death. And throughout Scripture and history ever since, we see many people have suffered imprisonment for their faith. Paul and Silas were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And the book of Acts records this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household." Whether you or I ever face persecution like Jeremiah faced, whether we face imprisonment, whatever we endure in this life, our deliverance is in the hands of God. And so may we not put our hope and our confidence in the world's systems or in the world's leaders, but solely in Christ alone. May we not be lured into attempts to be our own righteousness, to save ourselves, May we resist the lies and deceptions the world offers and instead stand squarely on the truth that if we believe the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. Saved from sin's fatal penalty, saved from sin's enslaving power, and saved from sin's dreadful presence forever. Faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat with high joy whenever we hear God's glorious word. Let's pray.